to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. Today's podcast, we're entitling Movement Building for a Better Future. In this podcast, we welcome two co-directors of Project South, the Institute for the Elimination of Poverty and Genocide. Both are seasoned activists, organizers, scholar, educator, visionaries who build movements for social transformation in the U.S. South and beyond. Where there is grassroots organizing in the South, there is Project South. Co-director Stephanie Gilliud works in membership, regional organizing, and the Southern Movement Assembly. She has done so much work over almost two decades, including uh, being the national co-chair of the People's Movement Assembly Working Group of the U.S. Social Forum that um, predominantly, the predominant meeting was in Atlanta. Uh, she was involved in the Seattle WTO, WTO World Trade Organization protest, and um, she's going to talk a little bit about that, hopefully. Uh, she also co-authored with William Cordery a well-known article that we're going to get him to talk about today, Funding is Not a Dirty Word, Community-Based Economic Strategies for the Long Haul, uh, about how to uh, do generative economics in the in nonprofit industrial complex. Co-director Emery Wright has over two decades of organizing experience. He works predominantly uh, with youth um, and empowering youth and being empowered by youth. Um, he served in leadership also with the U.S. Social Forum and works with communities to build, strengthen, and expand their grassroots movements. Um, he and Steph and the Project South Legal Advocacy Director, Azade Shah Shahani uh, wrote an article for Truth Out that uh, I want also for us to talk about at some point today entitled, Voting Trump Out Isn't Enough, We Must Organize to Build a Better Future. In this, they state, no matter who gets elected, Southern movements continue to resist oppression and build collective power. Steph and Emory are part of a real collective social change movement and movement building. They make the justice road by walking it. Um, through building these strong, lasting coalitions, Steph and Emory speak truth to power, showing us, as the quote on the Southern Movement Assembly t-shirt states, and it's available on the Project South website, nobody's free until everybody's free, a quote from Fannie Lou Hamer. Welcome, Steph Gilliud and Emory Wright to Nothing Never Happens. Awesome. Thank you so much for the gracious introduction and great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Tina. Thanks, Lisa. This is awesome. We're so happy to have you both here. And we just want to start out by giving y'all both a chance to tell us a little bit more about Project South. Um, tell us about the history of Project South and how you came to your work there. Great. Um, well, I'll take a crack at it. Um, Project South was founded really out of the Southern Freedom Movement um, in West Alabama in 1986. And importantly, it was sort of a combination of Southern uh, Freedom Movement organizers and uh, trade union organizers from Detroit that had come down South uh, really for strategic political reasons to locate themselves in the South and, um, and work together 
to um, really coming around a case uh, that was in response to the Ronald Reagan Justice Department's work to uh, sort of undo a lot of the gains of the civil rights movement and specifically the uh, voting rights movement. And so there was some uh, charges, some false charges of voter fraud that were leveled against uh, some community members in West Alabama. And a lot of the founders of Project South came together around that struggle and really realized that there needed to be a, a you, they won that struggle. And it was one of the few times um, when the Justice Department brought voter fraud charges that they were beaten. Um, but um, they realized that there really needed to be consistent education complementary to movement work to, to sort of um, let it last for the long haul. And so that was kind of the reason for the founding of Project South there in West Alabama in 1986. And, um, and we've been rolling ever since. Yeah, and I think um, just to the other question, you know, why I came to Project South is I think the reason a lot of people come to Project South and find Project South as a political home based here in Atlanta, but with roots um, across the region, one is, is big picture thinking. Project South is, um, you know, known for making sure that any, any systemic uh, problem, any oppression that we're facing, that there are roots to that oppression, that it's not um, our individual faults, um, and that it's really a collective process of, of liberation and organizing. And I think that, that big picture thinking is, is still, and has always been true for Project South and, and is still really relevant and compelling. And then also Project South has been um, about community organizing rooted in history. And so that, that historical connection that we can have these guidebooks, I think as a younger organizer for me, um, you know, you're, you're out there and I think this is probably relevant right now too. You're out there, you're doing it, you're, you're making it up because uh, in a lot of ways you're, you're forced into that position by the conditions, but how do we do it? How do we do it better? How do we do it with more accountability? How do we do it with, um, with more success? Um, and so that history piece to me is really alive um, and always was really compelling about Project South, the timelines, the political education, but really history as that guidebook. So um, what Fannie Lou Hamer said and, and did, um, what the Montgomery bus boycott represents and how we can understand that and apply those lessons to today. Those were really compelling um, factors and components of Project South. And then I think the, the other thing, and, and I think we still strive to, to do this, is really craft and, and collectively craft visionary politics that, um, that makes sense for what's happening today. And so, you know, with, with deep respect and appreciation to, to the founders um, and the name of Project South being the Institute to Eliminate Poverty and Genocide. That is a visionary and deeply rooted um, uh, mandate. And, and so I think that um, that's not about any one of us or any even era of Project South. That's about a legacy of work. And I'm you know, super proud to, to be a part of it and to have been a part of it for so long. Um, so that doesn't get us to exactly what we do every day, um, but it sort of is the basis from which we, we do our work um, as organizers, educators, 
um, infrastructure builders and uh, sort of a, with the hope of, of, of crafting that connective tissue across the region. Well, if I could build on that, um, I've had many groups and, and I myself have participated in, in many workshops over the years, and I probably own every toolkit that you've published over the years and used them in classes. Um, could you talk more about your philosophy of popular and liberatory education? You know, defining what you mean by those um, uh, for our listeners and, and then uh, sort of how do you start and, and think about uh, your workshops when you're coming in um, to a group? Uh, how do you start it with ground rules, the timelines, the charts? Um, I have t-shirts with those historical timelines on them from Project South that uh, um, are great. And um, they're, they're out of date now, but they're still, they're historical relics for me. Uh, so um, what, what is your um, uh, philosophy of teaching and um, uh, who were your teaching inspirations, you know, I know for, for the Highlander Center, Septima Clark, um, you know, I mean, there, there's that piece of the legacy, but for, for you two, personally and collectively as uh, Project South staff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's funny, you know, doing this call on Zoom, I have in my virtual background, Septima Clark, um, and, um, and definitely, um, along with Highlander Center, you know, uh, a huge, huge source of inspiration and knowledge around what popular education is. You know, for Septima Clark, I think popular education was always um, related to the larger liberation struggle. And so that's core for, for Project South. Also, um, it has to center the experience and the realities of the most oppressed people in our society. And, and, and that really is also core to um, Project South. And at the end of the day, it's about bringing that experience, bringing that knowledge uh, into the center of the room so the whole group can learn from that collective knowledge and move forward together. And I think that's another big aspect of um, of popular education for for Project South and and you know the South has a really rich history of popular education. A lot of people, um, you know, remember George Washington Carver as having to do something with peanuts, and 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 that was part of the history. But but uh, George Washington Carver was one of the most innovative popular educators in, in the history of, of the field and, um, and uh, had something called the Jessup Wagon that he would um, take through the different rural communities of Alabama and it was an actual horse-drawn carriage at first and he would have um, demonstrations on um, agricultural practices, really the, the newest and latest of agricultural practices and, and take that around to farmers and and share that practice and he wasn't doing that just because um, of agriculture but he was doing that because of his knowledge of what was needed for self-determination and sort of liberation in that time period and so you know I think tapping in as Steph was saying to the history of, of popular education and 
how it's happened here in this region is, is just really critical for us. Yeah. Yeah, and just to add, I think two, two inspirations that come to mind really immediately and um, is one of our founders, Gwen Patton, um, who was based in Montgomery, Alabama for a long time and really made history a living part of organizing through her practices. So making sure, she was an archivist, and, um, and that, that to me, that documentation piece, um, I think speaks to the publication, speaks to how we do some of the education work. And, and part of it is, is not, so if, if the, the knowledge that's in the room is what guides us as, as educators, um, how do we also um, hold that and, and synthesize it and generate new knowledge moving forward? And um, both Gwen Patton in terms of documenting it, historicizing it through archives and other practices um, is also is part of my inspiration. The other inspiration is Ruben Solis, who's a partner of ours who we work, we work with deeply around the People's Movement Assemblies um, and organizing towards the U.S. Social Forum and, and other um, and the Southern Movement Assembly itself. And and his crafting of that um, idea of movement knowledge and movement education, um, I think is really critical um, to our work now. But both of those inspirations, um, the, the only two words I can think about is discipline and rigor. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that's important um, because for us, political education is, is a practice and that practice um, is for a purpose, and it's towards action, it's towards toward change, it's toward full liberation. And so at every step, whether you're crafting the guidelines of how we're going to work in the room together, to what is the purpose of coming together, what is the content we're going to talk about, what is the dialogue, and what are we going to come out of here with? Um, what are we going to, uh, you know, deliver? To our, to our practices, to our people, um, and to the next steps. So th those are some of the, um, some, of, some of my inspirations that I think have deepened um, Project South's political education practices and methodologies that really, um, yeah, are the root of all of our organizing. Yeah. Just to build on that, do y'all have a recent or favorite story about um, beginning beginning a um, a teaching encounter or group community building, setting ground rules for who's in the room, telling stories that pops immediately to mind, just so that our listeners can get a sense of some of what this looks like concretely. Yeah. Well, right now we're in the middle of running our twelfth. Uh, Septima Clark Community Power Institute, uh, which is um, why I have Septima Clark in the background. And, um, and um, you know, it's always interesting every summer with, with youth and, and I think with any um, sort of extremely marginalized um, experience group in our society, part of what you have to do in, in setting up the space for popular education to take place is um, with the ground rules at the very beginning, sort of assert that this is going to be a very different space than most of the other spaces you've probably experienced. And um, because most of the spaces young people have experienced are adultist, 
don't value their experience, um, are more um, sort of top down and, um, and definitely uh, push back from a group of youth from towards an adult uh, facilitator or teacher is seen as, you know, um, very disruptive and not encouraged. And, um, and in, in popular education spaces, you want that pushback. So we start with the guidelines and one of our guidelines is we know oppression exists um, and we name all the dominant forms of oppression that we know exist, but we fight against it in this space. And so right up front, that's different, you know, um, that's setting a different type of tone. But with young people and with a lot of group, uh, um, incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, people living in poverty, um, you, you have to set it up, but you also have to prove it again and again and again. So um, there's a story, um, you know, that um, one of our partners likes to tell about their first experience in a BAM, and they gave some feedback on how the chairs we were using weren't really um, set up to be comfortable for people of all body types. And, um, and that was in the plus delta um, at the end of a session. And so we, you know, wrote it up on the flip chart and, and that wasn't surprising to this participant. But, um, but what was surprising was the next morning, it was a two day workshop uh, we had different type of chairs available and, and she lifts that up because she was like, you know, that's when I really was like, okay, they, they were serious about um, creating a different type of liberatory space. They, they went out and found some new chairs um, by the next morning. And so I just say that to say, you have to prove um, in popular education again and again um, that, you, that we are willing to, to build a, an alternative space towards an alternative future and, um, and that the process um, has to reflect the vision of what it is we're trying to change. Yeah. 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 So what's the next toolkit? Well, we'll uh, we're going to come out with um, um, Black Radical Traditions of the U.S. South Volume 2 um, this year. And so, um, so that will be one um, that's definitely coming out and we've we've started to do um, because toolkits are are a big endeavor. Also, handbooks that are more um, a little bit smaller, um, and other other publications that are that are focused on on specific issues. So um, so we'll definitely be producing some of those. But I think in this moment, you know, a Black Radical Traditions toolkit in the U.S. South um, can be just really really helpful to what we're facing as a, as a larger society, not only in this country, but in the world, because that story is, is a global story. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked about popular education and that philosophy. I'd like to get you to talk about your movement building philosophy. Um, you know, your commitment to cultivating leadership from within the groups, uh, raising up leaders from the affected groups, uh, hiring from these groups, um, and sort of if you could tell a story about your um, movement building experience that, that comes to mind, because you do so much movement building with so many different groups. Let's see, I was ready for the other one. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's right. Um, I go to the, I mean, my, my stories in that frame, it's, 
it's really related to the assemblies um, in, in my experience. And so I'm flashing back to, to Lowndes County, Alabama, which is very near to where we started um, and where Project South was founded and was also where Gwen Patton and SNCC veterans and organizers set up Freedom City, Tent City for over a year to organize and protect themselves um, against the white supremacist violence that they were facing for registering people to vote, for starting the, the um, Black Panther, Lowndes County Black Panther Freedom Organization. Um, the, the grounds themselves were sacred. The um, movement building process to me is related to that, all of it, all of the pieces. We built on those grounds. We organized people in buses and cars and everywhere to come together and converge. We, based on the vision of recreating some of that history, camped on those grounds. So it was a full body experience. <laughs> That's movement building is, is not theoretical. Um, and what we were able to do there is, is facilitate a process. So it's kind of taking the education to, to that next level. Um, let's facilitate a process based on our shared understanding of what's happening in our communities, based on our shared understanding of why it's happening um, and those root causes, and then developing plans of action to um, contend with it. And that all came out of our experience living through and organizing through the Gulf Coast crisis and of Katrina and the hurricanes in 2005 and the devastation that communities across the board faced. And we realized no matter what organization we're a part of, no matter what staffing position we have, as a generation of leaders based in the South with particular sets of experiences, we have a responsibility to craft a social movement process, a social movement infrastructure that leaders can find themselves within, they can work, they can connect, um, that we would not be isolated or divided um, in these different crisis moments, which of course we're facing uh, a completely unprecedented set of crises all at one time right now. Um, and so we lean into our movement building infrastructure, organizing and education as a way to um, contend with that and to keep ourselves uh, rooted. And, and there was a young young woman who stood up in, in, during that first Southern Movement Assembly and that was back in 2012. And we were preparing um, really for a second term Obama. And we knew even then, even in that moment, that no matter who was elected president, as and it's the same in 2020, no matter who's elected president and who sits in that particular office, we've got to have a plan. And so we were bringing that same same vision and then crafted the plan right there on the grounds. But a young woman stood up and said, um, you know, we can't do this alone and we don't want to. And, and that was a, a level of clarity, simple, but also um, not necessarily obvious that, yeah, we can do this alone, but we don't want to speaks to the desire you know, and that, the, that we actually need each other, not just because, not for some transactional need that we have to have each other to be able to succeed or achieve our goals, but that we really want to do this together. And, and that I think also speaks to 
um, this moment in, in terms of facing off with so much counter movement that happens when we do get stronger that starts to seek to divide. Um, and, and so to be able to have built levels of movement, relationships within movement, relationships within communities, we, we can withstand that, um, that dynamic. And so that's, that, that memory of Alabama, I think helps drive me. And of course we've had eight Southern Movement Assembly convergences since that time. We're inside of an action plan gearing up for Southern Movement Assembly nine in November after the elections to really um, build out our plans for 2021. And, and that, that forward thinking is I think um, another exciting part about Project Self. Yeah, thanks. Continuing this conversation about about movement building and organizing, y'all have said a lot and taught many of us very much about the relationships between the internal healing work that folks have to do and organizing work and how to frame the relationship between those um, interconnected but separate um, practices. So would you say, um, would you say some about how you see that relationship and what you, and how you, how you teach that relationship to people and with people when they, when they come through um, Project South? Yeah, I remember um, just recently uh, about a couple of weeks ago, we we hosted a, a webinar conversation with elders around um, really lessons from movement past f because of this uprising uh, moment of, mo of movements present. And uh, Loretta Ross was one of the panelists, and uh, and something she said I just thought was so clear and profound, and and it relates exactly to your question. Part of just the reality of movement work in, in her estimation, and, and I agree, is it attracts people who are most impacted by brutal forms of oppression um, into, and we, we want that and we embrace that. And that's who needs to be in leadership of organizing work and, and movement building work. So to think that we're not gonna come with trauma is, 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 is wild, you know, of course we will. Um, but to center the trauma is not the work of movement. We, and she wasn't saying, and I would never say to not address it. Um, it you know, she said, Lord knows we need to address it. Um, and the center of movement building work is radical transformative social change. And so we don't need to, and, and there, there can be a tendency to almost problematize movement workers because yes, we are holding trauma and, um, and that can look very scary. And, and so a conclusion could be, y'all need to stop doing so much movement work and, and just um, deal with your trauma. And, um, and what she was saying as an elder, and it was comforting to me um, as, as somebody who doesn't have as much experience or knowledge as she does, that, um, that we, we can't be problematizing ourselves as movement workers. Yes, we have trauma. Yes, we have to deal with it. But um, we also have to change the world. And, um, and that, that has to be our focus and that that's okay. And the two aren't mutually exclusive. So I just thought that was really, um, you know, profoundly related to your question. Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie, do you want to speak to that too? Just that, um, and it's similar to what Emery was saying about 
uh, when we bring folks together and how, how much when we're in spaces that those spaces are built for oppression. They're built to oppress people, to isolate, to create competition, to, to do that divisive work. And so I think actually part of um, the, the, the healing and the reconnection is in the group process and in healthy group process and healthy collective work. It's not easy. And I think that's that's sort of the 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 miss too. Like this isn't going to be easy because we're not only going up against our own trauma and background and a, and a, and in the current of an oppressive, um, many oppressive systems that act out on our our minds and bodies in many different ways depending on who we are and what we're living with, but um, but also that we're we're taught not to do that. We're taught not to come together. We're in fact trained out of it. And so I think that's a piece of the educational work and the organizing work is to model and create and co-create healthy and productive collective space. And that is healing in and of itself. And, and that when movement um, is at its height, the, 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 some of the dynamics of oppression and, and, and violence and um, and pain surface absolutely, and we've got to contend with that. But we also are able to um, to deal with it the other way, which is to um, not solve it or or resolve it for every single individual in the mix, but to create a collective process that people can find themselves and find a role and find um, purpose. And and I think that that inherently um, is a way to to contend with with so much trauma and pain. Um, and that we're, that everybody faces in different ways. Yeah. Steph, something you said just now um, reminds me of a, a line from your, your article, Fundraising is Not a Dirty Word, your Project South's article in the Revolution Will Not Be Funded volume, where um, this piece problematizes the kind of aversion among certain strands of left organizing against the idea of fundraising. Oh, it's too capitalist. It's, you know, it's, we can't do that. Um, money taints us. And one of the, one of the things that this article says is when, when organizations are competing for nonprofit funding, corporate funding, um, they end up in competition with each other. And I think you've just connected, both of you have connected the, the fact of the, competition among radical transformative organizations, movements to a kind of perpetuation of a lot of the racist, sexist dynamics of trauma that people bring to this work. So I'm wondering if um, if this might be a bridge to talk about your, your frame around, um, around money and movements, fundraising. It's been a minute since that piece came out. I'm wondering um, if your thoughts have changed at all since then, um, and maybe especially given what we, I mean, we've been seeing so much coverage of um, after George Floyd was murdered, um, so many people started flooding, um, particularly the Minneapolis Freedom Fund, um, bailout fund, with donations that overwhelmed them. And so I think we're seeing a lot of conversations in the, in the news about, about money, movements, how this can be both um, enabling and disabling. Um, so where, where are y'all on that right now? Yeah, 
No, I think it's very similar. I mean, we're the, those components, those bones of, of that piece are still true. We, we believe that fundraising is part of organizing and, and not as um, something separate, but because it's about relationships, accountability, um, and investment in movement so that it's ours, so that we remain autonomous, that we can sustain the work. Because, I mean, and, and I think both Emery and I were trained, you know, like, you got to have resources to move to to be too pure for that is is not um, connected to to um, real real organizing especially when we're dealing with real people that um, that need uh, to be sustained in all kinds of ways um, so I think that, that the basic tenets are true I think we also are, are still true and I think we're committed at, at project south and, and in our partnerships to developing deep and long-standing relationships um, with our with our folks, and that our folks are invested in um, in movement, and we're invested in redistributing wealth um, and talking to and engaging folks who maybe have a, a higher level of wealth to also invest, but for the but for the right reasons and and within alignment with us um, and within alignment with the movement. And that pattern is real. We've seen it over and over again, that when there is a disaster or a crisis hits, money and resources move. And, and what that shows, I think, is that there is enough money out there. <laughs> there is enough resource in, in our world to sustain powerful, um, both defensive and building processes in movement and what our job is as organizers is to help it move help it move and help it move in a more sustained way and not just in that moment of heat but all the time all year long and in relationship to the the organizations and and movements that are happening um, at all times and also to expose I think when when those patterns happen sometimes it's like the most visible gets the gets sort of focused and i think making sure and, and we as southern organizers know that there is so much ground level frontline organizing work that happens every community needs that type of resourcing and deserves it and can use it um and the mutual aid projects that have been surfacing and have for us have been happening for many many years but the, the excitement to engage a, a project like a mutual aid, food redistribution, um, making masks and getting them out into the community, um, making sure that those contributions are tied to the organizing and that it's not the charity-based model of, of giving something over here and walking away, but that there's an engagement and an accountability all the way around the block. Um, so I think that those same, um, the same tenets hold true, though I haven't read it in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the things you say in the article is, you know, how do we uh, move systematically against the system and the conditions it creates, while at the, the same time, you know, being part of the reality of sustaining the movement. Um, could you talk about where you are in Atlanta on Gannon Avenue? and how you've created that space as a mutual aid space, you know, together with um, the Georgia Coalition on Hunger and, and other groups. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah, and just just real quick on the on the funding piece, you know, one other one other piece um, I would want to just add 
is one thing we have kind of seen in more stark ways since um, since even that article is, you know, in these movement moments, it is it's like a dam bursting, and and nothing can. Um, there's no force in society that can put that water back where it was and put that dam back together. But what can happen is a diversion of the water and um, and and money and what happens with money and what doesn't happen with money has been and can continue to be a big threat because it can lead to diversion of what is grassroots movement energy into something else. And, and if you talk to any grassroots organizer that was part of organization building after Katrina, the amount of resources, the millions and millions of no um, even grant needed resources that came down, very similar to what's happening right now. It seems like, oh, wow, all this money's here. And, and in the Katrina example, it was for year one and year two. But by year three, which, which for us can seem like a long time, but for power is, is quick. Um, it's not even a presidential term. Um, all of a sudden, the money dries up. And so, and so in, the, in, the, in the Katrina example, what was happening was a, um, a dependence on resources. And so when that resource is left, a lot of infrastructure, beautiful infrastructure that had been building um, collapsed. And, um, and so a concern, I don't think it's gonna be the same exact pattern, but the playbook of diversion of authentic grassroots movement dam bursting moment um, is going to play out. How it's going to play out, you know, I wish I knew, I don't know, but will it involve money? Yes, it will. And so I think the, the enabling disabling piece is, is real. And so um, the other piece is, is infrastructure and, and getting to um, the Mutual Aid Liberation Center with the Hunger Coalition you know, what we've, what we've really started to learn and learn again and learn in deeper ways is the need for movement infrastructure. And, um, and as it relates to how movements can receive and distribute money, we can't do that in the same way that power does. It's the same reason we create these alternative workshop spaces in popular education. We got to do it differently. If, if, if money usually moves in terms of um, a few people making a decision for a whole bunch of people in capitalism, how does it need to happen in movement that's safe, that's secure, and that's, um, that's, that's in process different and more reflective of the vision we're trying to create? And so, so anyway, um, I think movement infrastructure around resourcing movement that's controlled by movement we're not there yet, but but we're you know we and many others um, who are out here right now are working on it. Um, and you also and so another form of infrastructure we've really been um, um, keen on developing is sort of grassroots uh, mutual aid liberation center infrastructure that can um, one be. Uh, a place where new social economy practices are developed, where um, um, practices to protect and defend our community are developed, 
where um, people's democracy, alternative ways to make democratic decisions are developed and can be hubs for social emergency response. And so, um, so we consciously transformed our building and land into a mutual aid liberation center with the Hunger Coalition as a local practice of building that type of community-based infrastructure. And, um, and the disaster piece unfortunately hit with this COVID-19 pandemic. And so um, within days of sort of figuring out, wow, we're gonna have to shut down our office and work remotely for an undetermined amount of time, we were also able to pivot and transform that mutual aid liberation center to a place that's operating social emergency programming. And with days of shutting down the office's regular programming, we relaunched um, emergency food distribution, emergency hygiene supplies distribution. And within five days, um, COVID-19 testing and education, community-based testing at the building. Um, and so, um, and so that was really um, a good sort of um, landing of this vision that we had created, unfortunately, um, a vision to, to be able to respond to catastrophic situations like this pandemic has been, um, but is, is part of the basis for why we've done that work. Just building on that, I'm wondering if y'all have more, um, more that you could share with us about your analysis of this current moment with the conjunction between um, the rebellions against anti-Black and white supremacist policing with the current pandemic. Um, what are y'all seeing? What are you thinking about? And um, we've, you've talked about the mutual aid centers just now, Emory. What are the other, what are the other ways that um, you're seeing responses emerge both within Project South and with partner organizations? Go ahead. Oh. I mean, I think the one thing that we've watched and known over these last 15 plus years um, is that there's got to be a combination of short-term response and long-term vision and building. And so I think to, to Emery's point about what we knew we needed to do and respond and intervene on what was and continues to be a level of deep, deep crisis in our neighborhoods, in our in our in our community, um, and so that short-term response had to have a couple of different um, arms to it. And so the food redistribution was one arm, but we were able to build relationships with households through that. We were able to find out what do they need in terms of the pandemic, um, and we were able to provide masks and hand sanitizers in that in that respect. As the protests started to rise and the intensity and the, the, the true and righteous rage of so many people and so many young people really boldly taking to the streets and taking to, to sort of a public action in the midst of a, of a highly quarantined moment. Um, that was where we really saw it all come together. And um, so we, we initiated and, and held a testing site for people who were out on the streets. And so that for us, it, it, did, it made complete sense that the same forces that are going to prevent 
young people, black people, um, folks without health insurance from getting tested, from getting health care, from getting any kind of protection against this disease are also the same forces that are killing young people, black people, folks um, who are out in, in public space and um, without any kind of accountability. And so that kind of uh, politic to protect black lives with both these short-term measures of intervening, testing, and with redistribution of, of goods and supplies and, and training has to be combined with a long-term vision that, that contends with the root of, the, of, of this white supremacist violence and intensity um, that I think we also have to connect to what's going to continue to be and, and continue to surface as deep financial distress in our communities and potentially much larger um, crises and, and collapses that we have to prepare for, anticipate, and, and prevent um, at least some level of um, that short-term ripple effect while keeping that long-term view in, in, in sight. But I'm sure Emery has more to say. Well, um, the, I mean, just building off that, the only other thing I would add is, you know, this, this moment, this pandemic, um, and now these, um, this global uprising, um, against, um, you know, anti-black racism, broadly speaking, has just revealed to more people, um, what was already true is that we are going through a major, major societal paradigm shift um, in the world. What's next um, is contested. It could be authoritarianism, some form of fascism, or, or something positive. Um, and, um, and, and so now, what are we gonna do about it? You know, um, and, and the other piece I would just wanna add is just like in the pandemic has taught us uh, a lot. And, and one thing that has taught us real simply is some practices we can employ to be safe. So we got to stand six feet apart from each other. We got to wash our hands a lot more consciously and a lot more. We got to wear um, face masks and um, it's taught us different, different protocols. It's also taught Project South, okay, um, social movements, um, are we already were sort of thinking, um, and now this moment has revealed social movements in the 21st century, if we can grow in our sophistication collectively to be more um, um, tight around governance, around um, um, getting and distributing resources, around communications, around education, um, and and hold because that shirt that Tina Pippen was talking about, um, um, what does it take to build a movement? You know, the assumption in that shirt, which I think is true, is that movements are always there, but they go up and down. And um, and in the 21st century, we have to create some infrastructure that doesn't allow the down to completely fragment and lose power, but to maintain some level of organization and power um, to recreate and reimagine society. And so we have to reimagine public health, um, social movements. Who, who else is gonna do it? Um, is it gonna be, it's not gonna be the private sector. It's not gonna be nonprofits. It's not gonna be um, um, the government sector. 
Um, it's they don't even have the you know after forty years of neoliberalism they don't even have the the tax revenue to um, to respond to things like Katrina and um, and this pandemic um, and um, and so who's it going to be um, and they certainly don't have the political will well I think similarly in this anti-black sort of violent upsurge against um, black life. And it really is an upsurge. I mean, people say, oh, it's, you know, we got more video cameras and it's true. Um, there's more exposure, but there's an upsurge. And um, at down by the office, um, you know, the amount of people who've been killed um, in the past three weeks, not only at the Wendy's, um, but right next to the Wendy's and, and on the other side of the Wendy's um, is, is just shocking. And, um, and we got we to gotta develop some new anti-Black racism pandemic protocol and PPE. We gotta, um, we can't be walking out by ourselves. Um, we gotta ha walk with people. We have to act like our bodies and life is in danger. We have to make sure we have charged cell phones to be able to um, video record situations. Um, we need to plan our movements in advance, just like the six feet distancing and the washing hands and the um, face mask. It's awkward, it's different, it's not as convenient. We got to figure out some awkward and not as convenient and different practices to survive in this moment um, of of the upsurge of of violence and um and that's what we're trying to figure out and do. But it's all related to you know what Steph was talking about in terms of just what social the the sort of role social movements can play in the twenty first century. Yeah, and you're doing this all in the state of Georgia, which has deep rooted systemic racist issues. And I'm thinking particularly of the prison industrial complex um, at the state and federal level, and, and also the Stewart Detention Center, and uh, what was formerly known as the School for the Americas in Columbus, Georgia, that trained uh, paramilitary for uh, Central American dictatorships. So um, I know you've done a lot of work on um, uh, deten with Detention Watch uh, and other things. I mean, this is, uh, and with DACA uh, students, because we're in a, met a huge metro area, um, Freedom University and, and other groups working on that. Uh, could you talk about that work? Because Georgia has been known as, as, a, as a pretty major place for a lot of uh, these systemic racist abuses. Yeah, I mean, I think making all those connections makes total sense, Tina, and, and we believe that capitalism requires this kind of violence and social control. So detention centers, uh, imperialism, as it shows up in, in military campaigns, covert and overt in, in other places all around the world, um, and then in our own communities, as we are literally inside of uh, a state of emergency called by Governor Kemp for a week um, that includes a thousand National Guard troops in Atlanta. Um, so that that level to which who who are they going to be targeting that and 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 why and how um, is just increases the violence, increases the the 
intensity. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we have developed over the years multiple kinds of strategies to contend with, to um, undo and dismantle some of the worst of these um, human rights abuses and really, you know, inhumane conditions inside of the detention centers. Um, and also the way it, 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 um, that social control interacts with whether or not people can apply for and get water turned on at their house. If they have any kind of former, you know, they're still on parole or they don't have a driver's license or don't have uh, the documentation, they don't get their water turned on in multiple counties and cities across Georgia. And so we've systematically contended with that. And sometimes it's just taken the exposure of a, a well-written legal letter that, that, turns over the ordinance. And sometimes it takes a very coordinated grassroots organizing approach. All of that is part of, and the tools of movement to um, dismantle violence and social control as it shows up on these front, on multiple front lines um, and build something that is about um, defense. And like Emery's saying, what does that look like in different communities? And so we also learn from multiple communities uh, about how to protect ourselves, protect each other, protect our families. Um, folks are coming up with new and, and innovative and creative strategies. And we're also um, leaning on older strategies of just letting people know where you are, when you're there and moving in pairs. Um, and we're also learning from, from global partners about what and how they're contending with this, with this public health crisis that is hitting across the, across the world, but also how they're contending with um, social control and, and white supremacist violence as it shows up at the state level and at this sort of social and, and sometimes organized, sometimes chaotic, but a very dangerous um, place in, in, in public engagement. And so we've got to both protect and defend um, in those, on all those front lines. Yeah. I'm so mindful of the way that time has flown in in our conversation, and I want to be respectful of all the work um, y'all are doing. So usually we end uh, our conversations by just asking our guests and also sharing ourselves what we're reading, listening to, watching, um, thinking about these days. Uh, as we go on and go on in this work. So what are, what are, what, what is on that list for y'all? I mean, for me, I love, I love this question. And, and it's really to, to Emery's point about this moment being a time to reimagine. Um, so I'm a sci-fi reader. So that's what I'm reading. I'm reading N.K. Jemison, who's uh, a black woman sci-fi writer in the legacy of Octavia Butler um, and watching like Norwegian sci-fi because I'd like to see other parts of the world. I like to build muscles that are about world building and, and world imagination because um, I do think and we've learned from a lot of partners but someone I've learned a lot from is, is Kenny Bailey who really believes that uh, we've got to build we've got to be world builders and we have to believe that we can be and are those world builders. Um, and we got to build muscle around that. And so building muscle um, around imagination for me is, is reading um, sci-fi novels. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, with, uh, with Kenny Bailey and, and the design studio for social intervention, um, they have um, um, a new book um, that's out that we got to read. Um, um, around um, 
um, ideas, arrangements, and effects. And so it's actually highlighted in the um, most recent nonprofit quarterly. Um, they, have a, they have an article in there that's really good. Um, so definitely checking that out. Um, uh, love anything um, article or, or book form um, by Kianga um, Yamata Taylor. And, um, and then just been fascinated, haven't finished, but I've been also watching a lot of videos of her talk about um, her new book, um, Race After Technology, uh, Ruha Benjamin. And um, it is just so deep and, and um, gives such um, sort of haunting clarity to what we're up against in terms of the encoding of, um, of racism um, into technology. And, and, um, and so that's been an awesome one too. You know, what are you reading? Uh, so I'm reading a lot. Uh, and, you know, from New Jim Crow to, you know, watching 13th to White Fragility to all, you know, all the books, um, trying to put together something that we can um, have a response to uh, as we organize the living wage campaign on our campus, which Project South um, has helped with uh, over many years, um, helped us organize and, and set uh, agendas. Um, uh, so uh, working with custodial staff on uh, reimagining a world where black lives really do matter on our campus because we pay them fair wages and we respect them and we uh, involve them in decision-making of the college. That's right. What are you reading, Lucia? Well, Emory um, stole my thunder with Hyange Yamada Taylor. I was about to say, I was about to say her name. Um, I'm teaching a class in the fall called Celebrity Politics and Power. It's going to be taught. It's going to the 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 gamut of the class is how do individuals become more than individuals? They become stars, and the whole infrastructure of money and power, power mapping that that takes. I'm teaching it as a stealth community organizing class because the punchline at the end is going to be um, one a question about celebrity organizing. So like, how did we get to this moment where organizers are being commodified as celebrities that distracting from the grassroots, but then also, hey, if we're going to create this much capital around producing Britney Spears as a star, how about we dedicate that same energy towards universal healthcare. So I've been thinking about that, but Kiaga Yamada-Taylor has a great review of um, Michelle Obama's new book, Becoming, on Boston Review. And it's, it's, a, it's a great exhibit of the, the way that she writes this book. This article is a great um, sort of enactment of a discourse analysis that shows how an individual's personal narrative of overcoming uh, transmits ideology about um, racism is a problem in your mind that you overcome and that's it. And it's not about structures. So I've been reading a lot of like critical pieces on celebrities. I've also been reading this book um, by Stuart Jeffries called Grand Hotel Abyss, which is a group biography of the Frankfurt School. Um, so it sort of lays out the social and historical context in which a lot of of the um, the writings and this particular school of Marxist criticism um, was produced and written and what those um, theorists 
what their relationship to wider social movements was, or in many cases was not. So it's helping me reflect on kind of what, what are the lines between theoretical knowledge production and teaching and, um, and organizing. That's super interesting. Yeah. Well, Steph and Emery, we really appreciate your time and your wisdom and your vision. Um, so be well, be strong, keep moving and movement building. Yes, yes. Thank y'all so much. This has been fun and great to um, talk with y'all. All right. Thank you so much. listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. That ends our interview with Project South with Steph Gilliard and Emery Wright. I want to thank our audio engineer, Aaliyah Harris, our research assistant, Kennedy Thedford, and our musical collaborators. The music today is by Acrasis, Mark McKee, Beats and Trumpet, and Max Bowen, Raps and Guitar. This song that you're hearing is called Paralysis Chatterbox. It's from Children Singing in Hell. Their music is available on bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening.